what we do is we phrase that as a prediction problem. Imagine framing it as a classification problem where you have a binary classification of does it stick, yes or no. And so you put in the structure of the protein, you put in the structure of the molecule, um, how they might fit together, and then the neural network scores, does it, does it fit yes or no? Having built that predictive system, you can, you can then screen billions of compounds that are commercially available today and, and pull down a short list of molecules that are, that are worth testing physically. But the initial testing of, of prototypes happens in the computer, happens through, through that you know, virtual, virtual prediction problem. Hey everyone, welcome to Brains Behind AI, a show where we meet the innovators, entrepreneurs, and the real brains behind some of the most successful AI startups. We ask them about their journey from coming up with the idea to finding the product market fit, and from their experience, draw a set of principles that we can take away to ours. This is your host, Ari. Thank you for spending time with us. And now, let the show begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of Brains Behind AI. This is a special episode for a couple of reasons. One, it's with a startup I'm personally following for the last four and a half years, and I'm a huge fan of their work. And two, as most of you know, I am passionate about AI disrupting traditional drug discovery models, and that's what we're covering today. I am super excited to have Abe, the co-founder and CEO of Adam Weiss one of the fastest growing AI for drug discovery startups with us today. And I'm looking forward to diving into Abe's journey from academia to building and scaling Adam Weiss to where it is today. So with that, Abe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ari. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. All right, Abe, before we dive into the company, we want to learn a bit about you, your own personal journey. And it seems like from your background, it was very, very academic where you started. And then from academia, it led to Adam Weiss and where you are. So talk to us about your personal journey and how it brought you to where you are. My background is on the pure AI side. My degrees are in computer science. So I, I did my undergrad and my master's at Cornell working on things like soccer playing robots. So like the World, World Robotic Cup. World Champions 2000, Go Big Red. But that kind of good old-fashioned AI is, is really where my background is. So I came pretty late into the life science part, into the drug discovery part. From there, I went to work in Boston for IBM Research for about five years doing what today we'd probably call big data. Up until that point, I hadn't, hadn't looked at any chemistry, hadn't really looked at any biology. And the story really was that a friend of mine kind of had a midlife crisis and he decided to go be a doctor. So he started taking pre-med courses. And when we would go out for coffee, he would complain about organic chemistry, the same as, as every pre-med in the history of pre-med, mm -hmm. he would complain about organic chemistry. And I thought it sounded really fun. <laughs> it actually turns out that the, the algorithms that organic chemists are running in their heads to try to figure out how to make a molecule look a lot like the algorithms that computer use when they're playing chess. And so that kind of tree search, heuristic search algorithms. And you remember IBM at the time was a leader with deep blue. Computers had just beaten human champions in chess. And that was a, a staggering breakthrough that had been open for like 80 years. People have been working on that problem. And IBM had, had just cracked it. 
it seemed to me that the, the problem of organic chemistry and the problem of, of chess playing actually were deeply linked. So I started taking organic chemistry courses at Harvard, you know, nights and weekends just to understand and see if I could do that work. That's how I got into life sciences at all at the beginning. And, and then I went back for my PhD and I had the good fortune to do my PhD at the University of Toronto. And I was there when modern machine learning was being discovered, right? So this, this shift from AI, good old fashioned AI techniques to machine learning techniques was happening with Jeff Hinton's machine learning group and, and mm-hmm. the, the invention of deep neural networks and convolutional neural networks. That machine learning group was on the same hallway as, as the computational biology group. And so I met my co-founder, Izzy. We were students in the same lab. And he'd been working on, before he came to grad school, he'd been working on protein analysis algorithms for, for a startup, like a, a small biotech. And so you can see the genesis of, of Atomwise in that intersection. It's Izzy's protein analysis algorithms, my big data approaches to chemistry, and that these breakthroughs on the other side of the hallway in Jeff Hinton's machine learning group, all three of those had to, had to come together to form the, the basis of Atomwise. Yeah, that's very, very interesting, right? You were doing robot, robotics, you got interested into organic chemistry, led to the PhD, and that's where you met your co-founder, right? And the computational biology and, and the advancements of AI and the cloud computing all sort of came in together. Where did that moment happen where you said, hey, there may be a company here where we can go take this technology and commercialize. There's more to it than research. And it began as a research question. People have been trying to use computers for chemistry for decades, right? Mm-hmm. The, the idea is a good, de- a good idea, but it's, it wasn't by the point we worked on it, a new idea. The use of these modern machine learning of convolutional neural networks, of deep learning, all of that was new. All of that was what we, what we brought in. But the idea of computers and chemistry, that wasn't. And sort of if you think about it, if you think about the context, every major industry uses computers to do its design, right? Most of the prototypes that they make and they test are, are tested in the computer first, right? If you think about, you know, mm-hmm. if Airbus designs a new airplane, they'll simulate a thousand wings before they ever build a wing. I'm here in California, in San Francisco. I have a pretty good guess that this building is going to stand up an earthquake, even though that's an incredibly expensive experiment to run. And the way we get that confidence is because we simulate thousands mm-hmm. of, of structural engineering decisions before we build the buildings. Pharma is, is really the last industry, the last major industry where you build every single prototype manually, right? You build it physically and then you test it physically. And so the idea that we could use computers is people have been trying for a very long time. It was that the accuracies were never good enough. Mm-hmm. So we, we began had the idea, the computational chemistry literature, people had been looking at the weaknesses at, at open problems. You could get these review papers, which we were very familiar with because we, we were doing our PhDs. And so we knew the, the relevant literature and what had come before us. And during our PhDs, these massive new data sets became available. And so Izzy and I would go for walks and, and get espressos. We'd go to the, to the coffee shop. And as we walked, we talked about like, well, maybe those data sets enable the use of the machine learning algorithm, which were also just being invented. And maybe together those could solve these longstanding problems. And so that it began with that open research question. And then it kept working when we tested it, it kept working. And so at some point you say, I think we may have something really dramatically better here. It's, it's worth taking this and doing it for real. 
doing it beyond a, a paper, but actually trying to have impact in the world. Got it. So once you got to that point, did you go out, raise a VC around? Did you put the team together? Where, where were the first few things you did? We started the company, we started in Toronto. Toronto today and the startup scene in Toronto today is, is very different from how it was when we were there. My day job was to go and raise funding and, and I failed at my day job for over a year, right? Like, so I'd go out and try to raise money every, every day. And I'd get these, these comments like people would say, you know, people tried to, to use computers for chemistry 20 years ago. What could possibly be new, right? Like that was, that was the kind of feedback I got when I tried to, to raise money. And so then in 2015, we moved down to the Bay Area for Y Combinator. One of the first investors here in the Bay Area that we met was, was Tim Draper of Draper Associates, one of the founders of Draper Fisher Jurvetson. And I gave a very similar presentation to what I had just been pitching you know, a couple of months earlier in Toronto. And I remember his comment. He said, you know, 20 years ago, I, I funded two companies that were trying to do this. Maybe it's time to try again. So the exact same, it was, that was the difference in perspective and mentality at the time between you know, what, mm-hmm. I, what I'd been getting back in Toronto versus, versus the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. It was people looked at the same data and had, came to exactly opposite conclusions about whether we were fundable. And so we've, mm-hmm. we've never left. We stayed, we stayed in the Bay Area and have grown the company here. So. Got it. So you started at Y Combinator, I'm sure it went to sort of a demo day, right? And then you got funded. That's um, right. Got yeah. it. Just for the audience, can you give us a very high-level overview of what you're doing with machine learning and deep learning? Sure, I'd be happy to. So for a drug to work, so what we do is we use artificial intelligence to help design drugs. For a drug to work, it has to stick to a disease protein to, to shut down the, the functioning of that protein, to, to arrest the disease process. It also has to, that drug simultaneously has to bounce off proteins in your liver or your kidneys or your heart or your brain that you want to keep functioning that, that are important to your, to your health and, and to your happiness. And so fundamentally, you want it to stick to the thing you want it to stick to. You want it to bounce off to not stick to the proteins you want it not to stick to. The state of the art really is to do that test physically. You, you set up a physical experiment and you test whether the molecule sticks to a given protein or not. And as you can imagine with physical experiment, that's laborious, it's expensive, it's, it's tricky and it's time consuming. What we do is we phrase that as a prediction problem. Imagine framing it as a classification problem where you have a binary classification of does it stick, yes or no. And so you put in the structure of the protein, you put in the structure of the molecule, um, how they might fit together, and then the neural network scores, does it, does it fit yes or no? Having built that predictive system, you can, you can then screen billions of compounds that are commercially available today and, and pull down a short list of molecules that are, that are worth testing physically. But the initial testing of, of prototypes happens in the computer, happens through, through that you know, virtual, virtual prediction problem. So essentially, we're predicting if the molecule is going to bind to the protein or not. And by simulating it, you're saving the actual experiment exercise and, and giving them the predictability of if the molecule is going to work or not through simulation using deep learning and AI and machine learning algorithms. Exactly. And so, so, you know, the question, if you had an oracle which tells you whether something, whether the molecule is going to stick to a protein, it, it actually turns out that many of the problems in drug discovery, not all of them, but many of the critical ones, from finding a molecule which has any impact on the disease protein to selectivity, usually you want to hit one protein very precisely and not others. 
you know, if you, if you think about like the proteins, your body is like machines on an assembly line in a factory and one machine is going haywire, you might throw in a monkey wrench. If you were on a factory floor and you saw a machine going haywire, you might throw in a monkey wrench so that you shut down that process and you bring the, the factory back into order. So that's, that's kind of the way the a way to think about how drugs work is they just, they just physically block up mm-hmm. one of the, one of the proteins. So the connection with AI here, we're, we were the first team that used convolutional neural networks. And so your, your listeners have, have used these, if they ever, you know, talk to Siri or Alexa, if they've ever uploaded a photo to Facebook and, and Facebook suggested tagging one of their friends that recognized the fa- face, if you've ever seen a self-driving car, the vision system, all run convolutional neural networks. Basically, they're our species best image recognition or speech recognition uh, technique. And so for image recognition, you have a two-dimensional grid of pixels and every pixel is red or green or blue color channels. Well, proteins are 3D, so we set up a 3D grid. And every grid point, instead of being red or green or blue, is oxygen, sulfur, nitrogen, carbon, et cetera, color channels. And as soon as you do that mapping, then you can use all of the advances in neural networks that have been uh, in training neural networks and developing neural networks. But you're doing it in 3D with biochemistry instead of 2D with images. That's the way the underlying technology actually works. That's amazing, right? So you've done some experimentation. You have gotten the funding to go build it out. But I know from my own personal experience, life sciences industries is not an easy industry to bring new products and technology to. So I want to understand what was your experience dealing with and now taking a technology to life sciences as an industry and saying, hey, here's what we can do this with AI and machine learning. Absolutely. My experience was that the life science industry is very skeptical. And in some sense, to be a good scientist, you have to be skeptical. You have to look at the data and say, how can this data be an artifact? What could we have done wrong to be a good scientist? And so the, the people you're working with in life, in the life science industry, in healthcare, in, in pharma, have that training. And then specifically for computers and chemistry, there have been, the skepticism is hard won and, and, and experimentally validated, right? Like there have been repeated efforts where people said, hey, I've got this, this computer, it can what are you still doing using test tubes? We can just run it in the computer. And so by this point, people have heard the pitch in previous decades and they're skeptical. They're correctly skeptical. So the burden is always on us, right? The burden is always on, on the new entrant with the new technology to, to prove, conclusively prove that you can do something you can't, couldn't do before, that, that this time it works. In the beginning, we would go to a meeting and would say, I have the shiny new deep neural network. And here's a case study where, where it worked. And sort of over and over, we got the feedback. Okay, but your case study isn't on a protein that I'm working on. It's not one that I know well. It's not one maybe that I care about. So how do I know it's going to work for my protein? It's a reasonable question, right? Like I, I actually have deep, deep sympathy, deep empathy for, uh, for the, the people in the life science industry. And so what we realized is we were just going to have to show, we kept getting this feedback. And so what we realized we were going to have to show is that the system not only works, but it's robust. It's that it generalizes, right? We, what we realized is we were going to have to show a hundred different times on a hundred different proteins, on different diseases, on different parts of biology, in different people's hands, that it just works over and over and over again, that you could trust it. And so what we did was we spun up a program called, called AIMS, the Artificial Intelligence Molecular Screening Program, exactly to do this, because we're not experts in a in hundred different proteins. So here's how we, we solved that problem. Imagine you're a professor 
at a university and you've been studying a, a protein, you have great evidence that, that if you could block protein XYZ, you would have, that would be, that would be amazing. It, it would have great impact for people with Alzheimer's or cancer or COVID-19. You have some insight into the biology. You know how to test whether you're blocking that protein. What you need is the drug. You need the drug or the, the molecule. You need the molecule that can safely and effectively block up protein XYZ. And so you can come to us and say, Adam-wise, I'm interested in protein XYZ. We will go run the AI. We will go screen the billions of molecules. We will pull down a short list. And we'll buy that short list and we will ship you compounds that you test in your assay. And then you share the data back with us. And so through this way, and it's been very successful. We have in the last 12 months, we have over a thousand applications to come work on this. We have over 750 projects in flight. We have at some point, many of them are very early, but we have results now for over a hundred different such projects. And so we can actually demonstrate here's with statistical significance, right? Here's where it works. Here's what the success rates are uh, and demonstrate over and over again that we could unlock proteins that, that otherwise were, were impossible. And then we can do it faster than, than setting up a physical experiment. And so that lets our partners do experiments that, that they couldn't otherwise do, right? It, it, it lets them ask mm-hmm. questions that they couldn't otherwise ask because it would be, you know, it would be too hard for them to set up the experiment. So, so actually we're expanding the scope of askable questions. Right. And over time, I can see it build credibility. Maybe for the first round, they were just running it in parallel for the second time. They see consistency third time. They're like, huh, this is working really well. So, so maybe we need to leverage that. So, so that's, that's great. What were some of the challenges you encountered in, in building and scaling Adam Weiss to where it is today? I think building out those proof points is a challenge. We're working with hundreds of universities and research hospitals. We're working with big pharma. We're working with small pharma. I think we had applications from, from over 50 countries just figuring out how to how to run our processes, our, our algorithmic processes or business processes in a way that's, that enables us to work at that scale, that's very challenging, not, not obvious. And, and you have to iterate your way to, to get those mm-hmm. good answers. Yeah, that's good. And in terms of the talent, because what you're doing is pretty unique, right? And I personally have struggled with it. We need to find people that are at the intersection of healthcare it understands the molecule, but at the same time, you need to pair them with the deep learning and AI subject matter experts. So, so my question to you is, how are you navigating, one, in terms of finding the right people and two, triangulating between a skill set that's usually never seen together? Yeah, you're right. You can't succeed at this kind of work unless you have the machine learning people sitting with the medicinal chemist, sitting with the software engineers sitting with the structural biologists. At Atomwise, we have them all in one room, or these days in, in one Zoom. And I think that's one of the real advantages for Atomwise versus, say, uh, the kind of silos that, that you often find in big organizations like Big Pharma. To succeed, you, you need world-class experts in their different domains, and they've got to be interested to work across, you know, to learn the language of the, of the other side. It's not that you're going to end up being a world expert in both machine learning and in medicinal chemistry. You can spend entire careers becoming an expert in one, but 
we have to be interested in, in collaboration working together. I think the good news is both sides are excited by the opportunity. If you think about medicinal chemists today, we get to test, we routinely test 3,000 times as many molecules as a big pharma has in their entire corporate collection because we do it computationally, because we do it virtually. For the machine learning person, you know, think about the number of machine learning people who are working on optimizing ad clicks instead of optimizing human health, right? Saving, trying, trying to work to save people's lives. I think, I think everybody sees that we need better medicines. I think everybody sees that, you know, and nobody comes down on the side of chemotherapy and says, chemotherapy, those side effects are fine, right? Alzheimer's, we have no treatment for, that's fine. Drugs, we work with, with NGOs, which work on, on neglected and tropical diseases, right? So we don't, we don't see people who say, you know, malaria, let's, let's not bother. Like, actually, everybody comes down on the side that we need better medical technologies to address global health. And I think that's a very motivating thing for machine learning people as well. And it's interesting because if you phrase it, if you do that framing of the problem, you see that it's a convolutional neural network. You see that, that the same tools apply. The language has to be mapped appropriately. And so, you know, we care about things like non-stationary distributions. We care about things like class imbalance. We care about, you know, those kinds of things, but those are very familiar to people working in machine learning. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now, as we look towards the future, what do you see the future the future for Adam Weiss and future for AI in life sciences in general? I think it's very bright. I think we, we just raised a $123 million Series B, and that's enabling us to grow and to scale in, in a number of important ways. So first, the range of, of molecules that, that you can work with today is massive, and it's, it's become massive in the last 15 years. I mean, this is a new world that we're living in. We're living through one of these transitions where synthesis on demand lets us do chemistry in, in, in a different way and access chemistry we've never been able to access before. And the chemical vendors are adding about a billion molecules a month to those catalogs. So for context, that's like taking the entire corporate collection of all of the top 20 pharma companies, putting it together, multiplying it by 10, that's being added every month to what you can order out of a catalog today. So there's no way to test that physically, right? You have to have incredibly accurate computational approaches to, to test those molecules, to just keep up. Because if you have a, even, even a small error rate, the false positives swamp you entirely. So we have to keep up. Like We have to scale our technology to keep up with, with the amount of chemistry that's out there. We have to scale our technology to work on broader classes of proteins. We have to scale our technology to answer questions as we take the molecules deeper and deeper into, into drug discovery. And on the business side, we're, we're continuing to grow our partnerships, our portfolio, the work with big pharma and small pharma, and we have an increased focus on, on doing our own discovery, on doing some, some of that initial discovery, heavy lifting ourselves. And so to do all that kind of scaling, we got to grow the team, right? Like, so that's, that's something that I'm focusing very strongly on. Great. That sounds interesting and very exciting. Now, one question I have for you is a lot of our listeners are aspiring entrepreneurs and a lot of them are interested in healthcare and life sciences and having an impact there. So given your experience building this successful startup and then scaling it out, what advice would you have for, for those listeners who are interested in, 
embarking the journey that, that you have lived through in the last eight years? I think there's two things, two things really. First, I know that a lot of the time when people are thinking about something and have been thinking for a while, let me say, I give you permission to go do it. Uh, it's not that you need my permission to go do it, but roughly speaking, no one else is going to give you any more permission than that. So, so sometimes people are just sort of waiting for the moment that lets them go do it. So here, this is the moment I'm letting you go do it for what that's worth. The second thing is always be thinking about, you know, what you really need to prove, what you need to, to prove. And fundamentally, all the different kind of proof points come down to demonstrating you're providing value to other people. That's what the proof points are, that, that you're providing value to customers, that you're providing value to your, your partners and your collaborators, right? It's just that you're continually sending value out. That's, that's how, at the end of the day, proof works. It's not about doing better on a benchmark which AI often thinks about, the benchmarks have to, have to link into people's lives or, or business outcomes. One of my favorite examples, if I may, on the need to really look at that and be very careful about it is, is Netflix ran this big challenge in machine learning, right? Which was the Netflix prediction challenge. Could you, could you predict? Engine. Right. Yeah. So, so like they had a set of data on, on people rating DVDs. And they said they released this large data set, real world data to the machine learning community. And they said, if you could uh, have a more accurate predictor than our baseline, 10% more accurate, we have a prize of a million dollars. And a ton of people worked on it. I mean, it was very exciting. It was real world data. It was a million dollars. And so, you know, at University of Toronto, where, where I had the good fortune to, to get my training, a lot of people were working on it. And eventually, after a long, long battle, people succeeded. They got the, the increased accuracy. Netflix paid out a million dollars and they never used it. And you ask why? And the answer is by the time the machine learning community crossed the finish line, Netflix had moved from renting DVDs to streaming. And it turns out that the business changed. The way you interact with Netflix changed. People rate the, the kind of labels, the kind of data that people had. People watch videos very differently when they're streaming than when they're DVDs. And people rate videos very differently when they're, when they're streaming, when they're DVDs. And so the, the world moved on, even though the, the prize was, yeah. was captured. Yeah. yeah. No, this is great. And the last question I have for you is, and I like to ask my guests, if you were to look back and if, there's, is there one thing or two things you would do differently now that you have the experience and the hindsight? Do you want it alphabetically or chronologically? Just one. Just <laughs> give us one. Uh, but it's, it's such a rich vein. If I could give one piece of advice for w what I wish I'd known, it's that you're not going to know the right answers. And so you got to iterate your way to success. You got to take many steps and get the gradient updates as many as quickly as possible. If you follow the gradient updates on what you're doing, then you can find progress. If you wait, what I mean is if you wait to get feedback from the world, if you wait to test yourself, if you wait to test your systems, you don't get that signal back about what's working, what's not. And so it's, it's just critically important to keep, to keep trying for real very tempting to say, in two weeks, we'll have a better model. Let's wait for two weeks. But then in two weeks, you'll still have a better model in two weeks. And so you'll want to delay and delay and delay. 
turns out you can't afford to delay. You have to like keep trying it, keep trying it for real. Uh, and you learn much, much more that way. So, so take, take small steps, take many gradient updates. That's the advice I'd have. I love that. That's, that's an excellent advice. Keep experimenting and keep executing on those experiments, right? Exactly. Hey, thank you for taking the time to be with us. This was super valuable for me and I'm sure super valuable for our listeners and our audience out there. So to your time, I know you're very, very busy guys. So time is much appreciated. I am glad that we were able to spend this time together. So thank you for that. All right, it's been, it's been a huge pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much for being here today. If you like what you heard and are interested in more, visit us online at brainedbehind.ai and sign up for my monthly AI startup tracker. That's where I cut through the noise and bring you AI startups that are making tangible progress. Till next time, go out, be the brains behind AI.